Pete Hammond, I have to tell you, I have been waiting a very long time to have you on the podcast. You are one of my heroes. You're an incredibly passionate fountain of knowledge about movies, filmmakers, all things film. I don't know that I, I know anyone who's as encyclopedic about movies and not just movies. You really have an affinity for filmmakers. And I think that's really interesting. So thank you for being on the many screens, big picture podcast for ComScore. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. It's very cool. Well, you know, I want to, I really don't have time to read through your entire CV, but I'll hit some of the highlights here. So Pete Hammond is currently chief film critic for Deadline Hollywood. For the past 10 years, he has also been awards editor and columnist for Deadline. He served as film critic for Box Office Magazine, Backstage Magazine, Hollywood.com, Movie Line, and for Maxim Magazine. And you are a frequent contributor to Variety. Pete is the recipient of five, count them, five Emmy nominations for his TV writing and is the winner of the 1996 Publicist Guild of America's Press Award and is only the second journalist in the organization's 50-year history to receive the award twice, winning again in 2013. Pete Hammond, welcome. Uh, what an incredible <laughs> career, and it's so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm so happy to be Well, I've known Paul forever, so I'm, you know, how long? I don't know, a long time. Probably we <laughs> met when we were like, 10 years old and now you know it's 20 years later yeah yeah that sounds good that sounds good (laughs) yeah we'll go with that i I wanted to talk to you about i know very recently you did a q a in a movie theater for netflix's army of the dead i believe it was at the landmark westwood yes opening night incredible theater what was that like to be back in the saddle so to speak to be back in front of an audience and doing a q a it was interesting. You know, I've been doing a lot of Q&As in the last 14 months, all virtually and things. And, you know, I used to do these live all the time. So this was the first live one. It was like picking it up right where I left off, it, except the audience, it, you know, it was sold out, except that it was uh, spaced out also. Right. So, you know, not every seat was taken. It was whatever with all the social distancing, but it looked good. Very enthusiastic audience. We had uh, Zack Snyder, Deborah Snyder, and another producer, it was uh, really well received. It was fun to do. Took some questions from the audience as well. Everyone was enthusiastic. The theater, the landmark formerly known as the Regent, has completely been redone. I didn't realize that they had actually opened it right when the pandemic was hitting and it was open for a week and then it had to be shut. So this has been waiting for its grand opening and uh, remodeled. And I believe Netflix put a lot of the money into this theater at the time uh, to do the remodel. And uh, it's gorgeous. I wasn't aware of that. I didn't realize that they had to wait a, almost a year or a year to have the grand opening. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to the head of Landmark there, and uh, he said, yeah, we." Op- he mentioned a couple of movies they had done, and, and, uh, and, and then they had to shut down. And so it's literally, I had not been by there, but it's a completely different look for that theater. And it was interesting to go into Westwood, you know, talk about doing a live q and I hadn't been by the Village Theater, which is now uh, reopening, and with a quiet place had that all set up ready to go but the Bruin across the street was all boarded up and so I'm hoping that reopens very soon too um it was a 
definite contrast between the two. Those, of course, are historic landmarks in yeah. Los Angeles and uh, run by Regency, but they're coming back too. And Westwood is, you know, used to be the king of all of it. And now it's a bit of a shell of what it was. Yeah. And, and you're exactly right. I, rem- I know we both grew up in Southern California and I know driving from the South Bay area, Palos Verdes area, all the way up to Westwood was a ritual. Yeah. A thing we would always do. <laughs> yeah. get, you know, my buddies and I get in a car and, and I'm talking a long time ago, Pete, uh, <laughs> when I was first able to drive and it was a destination. And you mentioned the Bruin and, and all those theaters that are in that, what, how many, just a few square blocks there near yeah. UCLA. And that was like the place to be. And I remember just, you know, you almost had to get dressed up to go. It was like going to Vegas back in the day. You would go to Westwood to go see a movie. And those were incredible movie houses, generally one screen. I don't know if they were 350 seat or more, but I know that that's where I'm sure you had many of those impactful experiences about seeing a movie to go to Westwood. It just felt like an event just being there. The very first movie I ever saw that I know of, Disney's Lady and the Tramp, uh, one of its many reissues, whenever, at the Village Westwood. And that oh. was the very first theater, and it's still it's still my favorite. And that's a huge theater. Of course, go there a lot, or what, before the pandemic, a lot of movie premieres being held there, and I'm sure those are coming back now. We just had the first premiere, Cruella, over at El Capitan, and uh, it looks like they're starting to uh, do it a little bit more now, and uh, you know, we'll see how it goes out. Well, you know, you mentioned A a Quiet Place 2 and and just now Cruella, and those are the two movies that are essentially starting off or kicking off the summer movie season of 2021. We literally weren't able to have a summer movie season in 2020. In fact, the entire summer movie season, Pete, in 2020 generated like $176 million. Yeah. I wouldn't have been surprised if you said 176000 quite frankly. I mean... I think so, because, you know, there were theaters open that that we weren't allowed to go to in other parts of the country. But, um, yeah. Well, and in a traditional year, the summer box office represents about four billion dollars in North America. So to be then at barely two hundred million dollars for obvious reasons. I mean, I have an asterisk next to these numbers for, you know, it was the year of the asterisk. But this year. We're going back to, as you know, and, and many people know or should, that the summer movie season used to kick off Memorial Weekend. That's when the summer movie season would start. Sure. It would end on Labor Day Monday. It was 15 weeks. And then as bigger and bigger films started moving up their release dates into mid, I think Twister was sort of a mid-May release and then earlier the movie Dave and the movie Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, I think opened a little earlier in May. And then when Marvel started bending the calendar to its will, uh, having late April starting off the summer. But how important do you think this coming Memorial weekend is to the industry? Does it need to knock it out of the park in that opening weekend? We may only have 70, 80 percent of theaters open or will films have legs? Will this be more of a return to the traditions of starting summer Memorial weekend, but films having legs? Well, I think, you know, the fact that not all theaters are open can be taken into account. But I do believe with all the waiting and all the hype on A Quiet Place 2, which I saw and really liked, I really think it delivered. I think it belongs in a theater. I think Paramount was smart to hold off 
not take any temptations here, uh, just as the bond people held off all those huge offers to, you know, break precedent and put that on. Cer certain movies have to be in theater and experience it. And this is one saw it at AMC Century City. They had three press screenings in a row. I went to the two o'clock, socially distanced, but nevertheless, you know, it was like good old times again. And uh, I think it needs to do better than whatever the projections are, you know, to make us feel comfortable that this is back. If it's below that, we're going to go, I, you know, people have gotten too used to uh, waiting to see these things on screen because this is a theater play. This is not going, you know, on VOD or anything right away. I'm hoping that this will be the turning point. I know they're counting on it. Even in my review that I ran, I said, you know, it looks like the whole industry is staking everything on this weekend to show signs of real life, you know, real numbers. You know, now we get excited if something makes nine million dollars. So. <laughs> oh, my God, it made nine million dollars. <laughs> Boy, you're so right, because we've had to recalibrate. I don't even think you could call anything a hit or a flop within the context of the pandemic. And, you know, last year's Memorial Weekend made $842,000 the whole weekend. And the number one film was The Wretched, which made $239,000. Yeah. Again, drive-ins, you know, I mean, drive-ins. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And there were only 476 theaters open on Memorial Weekend yeah. in 2020, whereas normally you'd have 57, 5,800 theaters. So obviously that was going to be a down year. I, I think we can both predict with certainty that this Memorial Weekend will be bigger than last year. That I'm sure of. And, you know, it was odd. I went before I went to Quiet Place, before I wrote my review, I looked up, I went through my old emails and they had canceled the press screening uh, like on March 12th or something like that. It was mm -hmm. supposed to happen. And they said, no, we, you know, this thing, we, we can't do it. We'll let you know we're going to release it at a time that's appropriate. Well, 14 months later, here we are. I went back to the same place where I was supposed to go to that press screen. It was like stopping in time, Paul. It yeah. really wasn't, you know, emerging. It was like emerging from a cave and out there and, okay, <laughs> it still exists and we're there and, it, and it, you know, and now internationally, you know, I'm supposed to go to Cannes. We'll see what happens. But you know, the theaters are opening in France and apparently packed as much as they can be. People are getting excited in China. It's really uh, picked up and uh, and we're using that as a blueprint to get yeah. back to where we were. And I hope people haven't forgotten what the movie going experience is, because I've been watching movies and reviewing them with my name emblazoned across the middle of them and yeah. hope that critics don't pirate these things and and you watch it and to me it becomes a, a tv movie for most of them yeah and uh, certain ones are fine you know and i fortunately i have a big tv and i know how to put them on there but nevertheless it's it's a whole complicated thing too everyone has their own system uh you know and you have to call support and try to get this thing on and it's just a hassle you know i just want to go out yeah in traditional times you would go to the theater and see it at a prescribed yeah, time that's the easy thing. They gave me the option of watching uh, Cruella on a link, and uh, I had to be in town anyway, so I went to the El Cap and watched that there, and uh, there's just no comparison. There's just no comparison for me. For me as well. I mean, if, to me, the movie theater is sacred, and that experience is like no other. And I think it's, uh, like you were saying, it's like emerging from a cave, and what I think a lot of us who love the movie theater were saying at the time when theaters started shutting down literally mid-March was that it's hitting the pause button 
This isn't goodbye to the movie theater. Like so many people, I'm not going to say it hoped because I hope nobody hoped for that. But I think a a lot of folks thought that that was going to accelerate a complete shift to the small screen, but it just didn't happen. And I think there is going to be a pent up demand. You try and go to a good restaurant right now. You need reservations. Oh yeah. People want to get out. Yeah. I've been to a few and they're packed. Yeah. There's no question. They're getting back. Of course, they've all taken over all the streets. We were at Spago uh, the other night and, uh, you know, they have this huge section that's all in on Canon. And I saw Wolfgang Puck there and I said, are you going to keep that? And he goes, yeah. Wow. I think they've gotten used to a a new normal for them, which is like pack more people in. So, you know, good for them. They've lost a lot of money. Well, that's the thing. It's sort of like some things are good uh, that are coming out of the pandemic. Some things in the movie industry. I think dynamic windowing makes sense for a lot of films. I think the 90 day window is anachronism in in today's world. But I think when uh, we have seen some of these movies open, like Godzilla versus Kong and Mortal Kombat and Demon Slayer, that not all of them were available day and date, but they are available very quickly on the small screen, if not on the same day, people still are going out to the movie theater. That's really, I think, a a good thing. And you would know better than me, but isn't that important for the bottom line of these studios and to have a theatrical engagement just to make your money back. I mean, it's fine to push your streaming service, which they keep changing owners every five minutes, but nevertheless, do they really make this money off of these investments without the theatrical? I don't see how you can without theatrical and on a big blockbuster. I mean, how are you going to make $2 billion plus or even a billion dollars plus Uh, You get that worldwide at the box office, even if they're splitting half of that uh, with the theaters, that's still a lot of money. And it's not a subscription based thing. It's one ticket, one person, one price or different prices for different audiences, you know, age groups and such. But I think it really is key. And I, I really like that the movie theater is showing once again, it's resilience And even though people try to count it out every time, you know, when TV came in, the home video revolution, I should say, then the home theater revolution now streaming, it's taken on all comers and really continues to show its resilience and singular identity and and importance. Yeah, and my wife, Madeline, put together a summer movie guide. It's digital. It includes the trailer. You can flip through it. They showed it at that big uh, NATO event. Uh, the, yeah. the big screen is back. And she spoke about it. And it's available to people. And, you know, she has like 63 titles. And the only rule is that they are going in theaters uh, in one way or another. And that's just this summer. So that's encouraging that there are that many and that, that there is excitement, not only for, you know, the smaller indies, but also, of course, the big studios, which are tiptoeing back into that world. Well, you know, you, that's a perfect segue into my next uh, question or topic is that I feel like there's this natural fixation on blockbusters because theaters that have been able to weather the storm need as many people coming in as possible. Theoretically, you get as many people as possible coming in with a Marvel movie or a big sequel or a Furious 9 or a Quiet Place 2. What's going to happen with independent film? We don't want those to fall by the wayside and be seen as, you know, for years, Pete, they've talked about, well, the blockbusters are for the big screen. An independent film is fine being viewed on a small screen. I totally disagree with that. But I understand why theaters want blockbusters, but I would think if you have a multiplex, please give some space to the independent films, which often get very high per theater averages, meaning they tend to fill theaters with those 
really cool independent films. What what are your thoughts on on that? Well, I think the older audience, which was proving they would go out, you know, the baby boomers and things grew up on this and they still want to go out. And, you know, I did as I still do a screening series. I did a couple of them, but I do a year round one for KCET. And we were at the Arrow and we were at the Arclight Sherman Oaks. Don't know what's happening there, but um, (laughs) the Arrow's reopening and, you know, we'll hopefully go back to live. But we've been doing it virtually uh, since last summer, very successfully. And I've been doing maybe four movies a month uh, and the Studio, uh, whoever wants to be in it with these adult themed movies, dramas, documentaries, things that would play the landmarks of the world and all of that are very willing to do it online with the right security. I'm hoping, though, to go back live where they don't want to give me these movies for online, you know, where we want to do it <laughs> yeah. again in a theater. And, you know, and I hope they get that attitude that there is a big audience out there waiting to come back. I believe they are, and they want adult entertainment and they want the kind of thing studios, you know, decades ago would be interested in a steady diet. I was at this big screen as back event uh, um, and, you know, they showed off 13 different distributors, studios, indies, showed off what they've got this summer. And I mean, half of them must have been horror movies. It's just like, (laughs) give me a comedy. There was not a single movie that you could classify as a straight comedy. Action comedy, a couple of them, both starring Ryan Reynolds. You know, a big musical like In the Heights. Those were the exception. The rule was genre, genre, genre. That is not going to bring the older audience back in. They're going to stay away and watch Netflix, which at least offers a steady diet of different kinds of entertainment. And that's what the industry needs to do. And that and the indies need to be supported, too, because they're the closest to actually uh, giving us, you know, not the steady diet of sequels and blockbusters and things. A little different that still can draw people to theaters and keep these theaters alive with that. Uh, They were trepidatious, but the older people are the first to get the vaccine. They should be secure about it, uh, I think, now. But you have to build something they want to see, right? If you just have horror movies and genre films that are aimed at the 18 to 24 year olds, as we always, (laughs) you know, (laughs) used to talk about. You're going to kill it because it's it's got to be a variety of stuff. Look at the Oscars. What happened to them this year? There were a lot of good movies there, but, you know, they're coming out of streamers and things and very small. And most people hadn't heard of them and they weren't focused on them. And it wasn't getting with a theater. You're in a theater. Movie going begets movie going. You see the posters coming up. You see the trailers. You are not interrupted by all kinds of things in your house. There is a reason you're out there and that's going to bring you back. That's going to increase the steady diet of movie going. Uh, You don't have that. Uh, We didn't have that last year. You just had to know how to find this stuff. And so did Academy members. They didn't even know half these movies. They were on their digital service and alphabetically listed. And how do you know without that kind of thing that we used to get when we go to a movie theater? Well, you know, the Oscar race was really interesting this year. And I I think obviously with the big screen experience for those films was truncated, if not eliminated for most of the films, I think there was virtually no or very little theatrical exposure for the contenders this year. How did that change the dynamics of the awards and the perception of the movies themselves? Oh, I think it definitely changed the dynamics of it. You had the streamers 
with the big budgets for advertising that uh, any kind of Oscar campaign really needs to to bring attention to these movies. So you had Netflix with with 12 movies and Amazon spending all this money on these things. Searchlight, though, you know, which has had now five best pictures, comes in with a small movie that benefited from winning a lot of critics awards and winning, picking up things along the way and became sort of inevitable. But it was all these small movies that they had to watch and without those big films that were thrown out of the year you know and moved west side story was moved french just all of them whatever they were they didn't want to waste on this year because it's it's kind of uh, filmmakers who rule the roost in terms of getting these things made wanted their movies seen in a theater the way they made them and you know for any movie that doesn't play well on a small screen it was devastating actually they had to get inventive and try different ways of doing things virtually and the q and a's and all of that you know we did but it wasn't the same and i'm hoping the uh, and the and it was reflected in the ratings of every award show they were all down 60 percent because if you don't know the movies the movies drive the viewers they have to have some sort of rooting interest we didn't have that this year at all. Watching Francis McDormand, it may have won Best Picture, but, you know, packing boxes at Amazon it, on your TV set isn't the same thing. You're exactly <laughs> spot on. And I think it is that the big screen experience brings a, a, a just a different level of uh, gravitas to any film. And being in a movie theater, you're treating the movies like art. In other words, you can't get, I mean, you go to the snack bar or whatever, but you know what I mean? It's not like at home where I could just pause it anywhere. Somebody comes to the door. I have to answer the door. If the dog starts barking, whatever. So it's really not as immersive and not to forget the communal part, which is also very important, but the, the immersive part of that sort of went away. But I think it did. I think for a lot of people, even non movie people in a given year where movies play in theaters, they're aware of the movies that are nominated this year. There was a real identity crisis. I think a lot of people couldn't have named off one. That doesn't mean to diminish these movies. They're all amazing. But you you asked a, a typical person on the street, they might say, what? I don't know. Is there an Oscars? What's happening? So I think a return next year of a more traditional Oscar lineup. Although let's remember, we're ha almost halfway through the year. We're still not back to quote unquote normal for the movie industry. No, and we'll see. We'll see some movies coming up, but you're right. I think it's going to be another year before you really uh, get going uh, in terms of hopefully with the Oscars. You know, they've had all kinds of changes and rule changes with the Academy and diversity initiatives and things that are trying to get a, uh, everybody on the same playing field. But they also need to look at their own history and see what brings in viewers. And if you want to keep it going, you know. Dropping from 23 million or whatever it was to 10 million hertz. Ouch. No matter if there's a pandemic or not. And they were kind of arrogant in producing that show and uh, putting best actor last because they were convinced Chadwick Boseman was going to win for a movie that wasn't nominated for best picture. They should have read my columns, you know, a couple of weeks before, because I said there's a big movement for um, Anthony Hopkins here. We had all the clues and uh, and they threw that away at the end. And it was just a, such an anti-climax, not putting best picture at the end. There are certain things we expect. Uh, and, you know, they said, we're going to produce the Oscar show. It's going to be like a movie. Steven Soderbergh said, who was producing it. It's going to be like watching a movie. And they, they opened the show with running the credits at the beginning, which was different. Then I forgot it. I was supposed to be watching a movie. 
And it was just like all they did was talk. They didn't even show clips. And I said, it was just talk like this sound mixer wanted to be in movies because of whatever. And who cares? And, you know, and so that was disappointing to me. So if the movie we were supposed to be watching was like my dinner with Andre, where they talk for two hours, they did it. But (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting, though, because, you know, some experiments work. I know the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame went to a virtual situation they do like documentaries in a sense for each act and then they the members of the band and i actually thought was one of the best award shows in terms of that but that's different that's a different animal there but i think this was an experiment i think you can learn from experiments this experiment was created in an unusual time and space and if the general consensus is hey that didn't work you know you kind of need to go back to what did work or maybe riff on that a little bit Maybe find a way to combine the old and the new. Well, put some comedy in it, at least. I thought the best award show I've seen in the whole pandemic was the first one, the Emmys, with Jimmy Kimmel. It was entertaining. It was fun. They actually attempted something impossible of getting these statuettes to winners who they didn't know who they were, and that worked brilliantly. I mean, it was fun. Here, it was two hours, 40 minutes in the show before Lil Rel, who was on the pre-show, so nobody who watched the uh, didn't watch the pre-show knew this guy walking in suddenly getting Glenn close to, you know, do the do her thing. Uh, you know, at least added some fun to it. I, I think you can't be so super serious with this stuff. And uh, if you want and and of course we want these shows to succeed because they're gonna drive interest in going to see the movies. That's what right. it's always been about. That's why the Oscars used to be only on Mondays this this you know, smallest night for movie going because they didn't want to disrupt it. They wanted to use it as a commercial. The Oscars should have been one big giant commercial for restarting the movie industry and the exhibition industry. It should have been, they missed the boat. Thank God for Frances McDormand winning something because she's the only one that seemed to get that message out there. And I think that's, that's really important. I mean, it is like a, a in, normally it's like a three hour infomercial for the, for the movie industry. And that's actually a good thing because it, it just uh, illuminates the prestige of it. And you think about it. I think about it too, this way. I love streaming. I watch streaming all the time, but it's a sea of content. It almost makes the movie theaters look like a bespoke curated kind of handpicked experience, even with the big blockbusters. Cause on a, any given weekend, you have a few wide releases normally and a, and a few uh, limited releases and you go there and you're all in, you buy in on this, you know, the heavy lift, not even a heavy lift, but compared to sitting on your couch to go out to a movie theater, I think people are going to really, we're already seeing consumers, movie fans around the world embracing the movie theater. I never lost faith. I know, I know you didn't, but boy, if you think about it, the stuff that was being written a year ago, they were literally writing off the movie theater. I know. Well, a lot of the people with uh, ulterior motives saw this as their big opportunity. I won't name uh, any streamers by name or anything, but this was clearly something that, wow, this has been handed in our lap and now we can prove this. But I think, the, as you know better than anybody, movies have been threatened by everything. This is the end of it. You know, uh, yeah. television, radio, no matter what, it's over. <laughs> and uh, it never is because as the great late Jack Valenny always said so famously, what kid is going to want to sit on his parents' couch on a Friday night? Uh, watching TV, they're going to want to go somewhere. And movies still are the cheapest form of entertainment. And that is true now. And it was true always. And so 
I, I don't think they're going away, but we do need to be aware that they need to provide the audience with reasons to go and uh, and get back to what what movies have always been for us. And that's you mentioned passion. That's why I have a passion for it. You obviously, Pete, have an amazing passion for movies. I always like to ask people where I know how, why I have a passion for movies. Where did that come from for you? Was there a formative experience? Was there a family member who introduced you to movies? Did you see a particular movie and you had that aha moment? What was it for you that, uh, why are we here now <laughs> with, with your great career and, and, and your knowledge and passion? How did we get here? What was that story like for you, that journey? Well, I'm a L.A. native, born in Santa Monica, you know, so I'm here. But, you know, my family wasn't in the business at all or anything. But from a very young age, and I have photographic proof of it, because there I am on the floor cutting ads out of the L.A. Times, you know, entertainment section and doing my own little movie theater in my room when I was seven years old. So I was always into it. Always. I don't know. What the moment was, I do remember, as I mentioned, I saw Lady in the Tramp at the Village Theater. We went out and got a Cocker Spaniel after that, named her Lady and the whole thing. So I was definitely influenced by what wow. I had seen. But I always loved movies and I didn't fidget in my seat like a lot of my friends did. And I go like, that's that's not very good. Don't do this. Just watch the movie. And, uh, you know, so I always had respect for them. But I loved it. We talked about Westwood. I did that all as, as a teenager and in college, always going there uh, to see them in pristine shape and right when they come out and had my own little awards saying that I did the hammy awards and I would invite people over. I was always into it in other words, and I had to figure out how to get into it where they would pay me. So I figured, <laughs> you know, I did acting all through uh, school, but then I, um, figured writing was the best way in. And, and one thing led to another and I wound up, you know, those Emmy nominations were for kids TV and different things that I did and get all these writing jobs. And those jobs, oddly enough, led to these entertainment shows that I worked on, like Entertainment Tonight and Access Hollywood and Extra and on and on and on that I did, Arsenio. So I kept it going there, just booking all the movie stuff. I was a guy working in television, but promoting movies. I was in charge of the movies for all of those shows. And then kept it going, got a job at the LA Times, on and on and on, writing about movies, doing things. And then dead, finally Deadline, where I've been now over 10 years, my longest job ever. And that's a perfect place for me because it's it's the industry that's reading and, and stuff. And I love writing about this stuff and, and doing all the video interviews and, and talking to actors. I love actors. I want to wrap up here, but I have to ask you, what is it like when you're interviewing the actors those for me, I, I get starstruck. I, I just have to tell you. And I see you interview the top creatives and particularly actors uh, in the industry and, and, and some of whom are also huge celebrities. You seem completely unflappable. And I think you're more <laughs> awestruck by you, <laughs> by you than you are by them. But do you think that just comes from you're so well versed? You, you, you live and breathe this that there's no like fear factor for you because you could talk to any actor. You probably know more about their filmography than they do. Is that part of it that your knowledge and passion kind of offsets any nerves? And I'm not saying you even get nerves. Like if you do, I don't even see it. But you've interviewed some of the top people in the industry. How, how do you do it? Is it? Does it come from all that? or It comes from when I was initially acting all through school and things and had all those actor dreams that I just showed up and realized I hadn't memorized my lines. So do I have nerves sometimes, but you know, 
it's only if I haven't prepared. If I'm actually going to be so arrogant to go into an interview and just going to, I'm going to talk off the top of my head with Nicole Kidman and anything and not want to know, you know, everything about her or, you know, what I'm going to be talking about, that's really bad. And so I'm always, if I'm nervous, it's because I haven't done the homework yet. Once I do that and I'm on camera with them or doing this, I'm fine with it because I love talking to them. And this is my moment to talk about what I love to talk about. And I find 99% of them are that way too. And they really appreciate it. And, uh, and they love talking about themselves. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, for those listening, uh, I guess, uh, preparation, great preparation, then you can avoid a lot of perspiration. Well, it's exactly true. You know, they talk about the Q&As that I do and you go on stage there. I always have a little index card because once I went up there and I realized I forgot the name of the movie that they were in, that <laughs> the audience had just seen. It was just a senior moment or something. So uh, ever since then, I have a little card in front of me that's a little cheat seat in case I go like, you know, whatever. Smart. Uh, and go off. I'll never forget. I was doing an interview at the Academy for Into the Woods and they had everybody there. It was 14 people, Meryl Streep, Rob Marshall, everyone in the movie and down to cinematographer, film editor. Uh, it was the whole thing. And I'm there and I'm introducing each one of them and I'm going down the line and, and I do this whole thing. And then I, I realized the second to the last one I'm talking to, I said their name. I realized there's one person at the end. I have no idea who they are. Oh gosh. And I'm freaking <laughs> out. I'm going, Oh my God, I don't know who this person, did they just throw this person up there? Who is it? I just zoned out. And so I got to them and I said, and finally, well, so celebrated. I don't need to tell you who this is. And <laughs> <laughs> that's how I did it. And I said, you know, you tell them who you are, you know, that'll be a fun way. And so he did. It turned out to be the cinematographer, but um, you know, so uh, sometimes you have those moments and you just have to you, you deal with it one way or another, but that's why I always have a, a card. And you got to be quick on your feet, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you do. Front of an audience. And I, I want to really, on a very uh, important topic, you mentioned earlier, I think I heard you right, you created an award called the Hammy? Yes, I did. And it was, you know, in the 70s. And I had uh, people over to the living room and, uh, you know, and I would, oh, I recorded clips on a tape recorder and made them sit there and listen audio. And I, I cut out all the photos and had them on a slideshow. You know, it was all very primitive before computers and all of that. But um, yeah, it was fun, you know, and I, I had people come in and sing the nominated songs. Yeah, I was always, I think that's how I wound up, you know, reporting and doing award shows because I was always into them. Oscar uh, stuff. I, the biggest thing I ever got was in college, some friend of mine in college showed me a book called Academy Awards Illustrated by the late, great Robert Osborne. And it was produced by a local press here, uh, a book, book uh publisher and i've never seen anything like it that had all the nominees not just the winners all the nominees for the history up to that point and i go oh my god i gotta get this and i it was just like nirvana for me to have that and i'll never forget that because that to me was like uh, uh, to that point there was no reference guide for this like that 
That's incredible. Well, I'm just going to say, if anyone from Deadline is listening, we got to bring back the hammies. I'm just saying. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. well, well I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But um, <laughs> yeah, from your lips to somebody's ears. <laughs> well, yeah. I love it. I think this is so cool. Pete Hammond, you're the best. I have been so wanting to do this for so long and learning about you, a bit of your background, because I've always marveled at where does this come from? Uh, you, you are just one of a kind. And, and I think everybody in the industry just loves reading you, loves watching your Q&As and really learning a lot from you. So thank you so much for being on Comscore's Many Screens Big Picture Podcast today with me. I really uh, let us know where can we find you? Are you are you on socials? I know, I know we can find you at Deadline Hollywood, but uh, yeah, uh, well, I'm on uh, Twitter because thank you to Deadline who have a social media guy that puts all my stuff on there because Pete don't tweet. <laughs> uh, you may not have heard this, Paul, but people have been getting in trouble with tweets. Yeah, and, uh, I, heard that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I always forget to tweet anyway. Sometimes I do during award shows and things, but uh, all my stuff from Deadline uh, goes up on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, so it's at Deadline Pete. You can follow me there, but I have uh, all of that social media. I'm on Instagram, too, with my reviews. So, you know, I'm around, but mostly Deadline. You know, you can uh, find me on the homepage and link to all my stories and, and whatever you want. Wonderful. Thank you for being here. And I love, you can't see this, those listening, Pete's wearing the coolest Austin <laughs> Powers International Man of Mystery t-shirt. <laughs> Amazing. Maybe you can send me that. We'll we'll put it up with the uh, with the podcast, Pete. <laughs> exactly. well, thank you so much, and I'll see you at the movies, Pete. Thanks again, Pete Hammond, for being here on the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Paul's the best. He, you know, talk about you know knowing everything. Paul Paul's the guy. So uh, thanks. It was fun. 